This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. Good morning, folks. Today is the day. The New Hampshire primaries. We will uh, get some votes that will be coming in, and we'll be hearing about this all day today. It is now down to a two-person race. Nikki Haley, former President Donald Trump, we'll see where this all goes. And we'll talk about an article that was written uh, the other day um, by Jim Garrity relative to how Democrats are exploiting democracy is at stake. What does that mean? How do we define that? How do we look at that? What are the lens that we're looking at uh, when we consider whether or not democracy is at stake? And this is just one of those other sound bites that we hear about all the time. So we'll talk about that as well. Tom Trung joins us in a 12 o'clock hour, WWL multimedia journalist, and he just releases a podcast about Louisiana's political leadership. And the fact that it is now ruby red, or supermajority in the House, supermajority in the Senate, the landscape seems to be clear for the in, the newly inaugurated Governor Jeff Landry. What is going to be uh, his strategy as he moves through the first four years of his administration? In the 11 o'clock hour, we always have the NOLA Coalition. We talk about those folks down in the trenches making a difference each and every day, giving them an opportunity to tell our listening audience about what they're doing and what they hope to achieve. And today's no different. We'll visit with Valerie Jefferson, President of the Women of Action, ATU Women's Caucus of NOLA, as well as James Gray with the NAACP, also uh, head of, leader of the ACT SO uh, year-long enrichment and achievement program. And we'll talk about how those two are coordinating their efforts uh, coming together as two independent organizations trying to make a difference in our great city. There's been a lot of chatter about the aftermath of this first special legislative session. When I saw the call the first time, you were a call, that I said I was totally taken aback and somewhat mystified by the breadth and depth of the number of issues that were brought forward, a lot of which had never really been talked much about. And it was a surprise to me, other political pundits, politicians, as well as members of the state legislature, as to why this call would be so aggressive. Yesterday, I talked about that there was this feeling we had to do a number of things with haste, and we needed to ride the wave of the successes of Governor Jeff Landry and his uh, successful bid in that election, winning in the first primary, uh, which is pretty much unheard of in this state, but he did so. And whether or not that was going to bode well for him, a number of folks don't think he came out of that session very well, and I was kind of curious to talk to 
someone from the legislature or former legislate, uh, legislator as to their thoughts about where this uh, played out. And Tanner McGee joins us, former Louisiana State Representative, District 53 from Lafouche and Terrebonne, who um, retired from the uh, state rep position. He could have run again and decided uh, to leave. Joins us. Tanner, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So, Tanner, I don't know about you. Were you equally surprised by the breadth and depth of the call of that special session? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially given the time frame uh, that the special session was for, um, it, it was a lot. It was a lot of different topics. He pretty much put almost anything on the election on the table, uh, but it didn't seem like you had a huge plan to accomplish that given the time frame. And I, I expected that he would go in there uh, with the bills already thought out, and pr- probably I thought that the bills would. He'd already had agreements with all the leadership and everybody he needed to to just fly them through. I was sort of uh, taken aback. Uh, that none of that had happened, and he was just kind of, I mean, it looked like from my perspective and from talking to my colleagues that there wasn't um, a real plan for a lot of these bills, or the plan was they thought that he, or he thought he would just pass it pretty easily uh, with no <laughs> with no um, obstacles, but it didn't really work out that way. What did your gut tell you as to what the response of the legislature, both either the House or the Senate, was going to be? When they when they saw the call, I talked to some folks that were very, very surprised uh, by that and knew immediately their political intuition uh, said to them that with the voting public, some of these issues were going to be a problem. Oh, absolutely. I mean, open primaries is extremely popular here. Closing them is not something that the public uh, has any sort of outcry for. You never hear that. I can tell you in eight years of being in the legislature, not one time that I get an email that I can remember a phone call, somebody stopping me on the street and saying, hey, Tanner, the most important thing you need to do is close these primaries. Um, so to make it your first bill and your signature bill was a little bit of a head scratcher for sure. Um, and then you were kind of pitting and putting these legislators in the position to doing something that was not really popular back home. Um, and if they did hear comments, probably most of them received negative comments from the general public. So it's kind of an interesting choice when you want to do because you think you kind of want to go for some easy win, wins, look invincible. I mean, I think my feeling was Governor Landry went into the session looking invincible, and he came out looking not invincible. Um, and so I, there was some head scratchers. I mean, look, doing the redistricting maps, I've been through that, is extremely difficult. It touches so many different people, and people come out of the woodworks, and you almost make nobody happy. So to add anything on top of that, the congressional map that you had to do was sort of a recipe for um, problems. And that's really why the legislature – has always attacked redistricting in special sessions is because we never wanted other politics to bleed into that issue because it's so difficult and you didn't want to add on top of you know, layers and layers of obstacles. And it's kind of what you did. It was kind of, you know, a mistake, I think. When, uh, when I thought about what, what they were trying to do, let me, let me rephrase it this way. Uh, I guess you kind of sort of like me. I, I mean, I've been called a rhino many times in, in, in my career, and I, I say to the Republican Party that I wear that with a badge of honor because that basically means that I'm expressing myself in a way of being independent from the party, that I'm not just drinking the Kool-Aid and going along for the ride uh, when I'm philosophically and fundamentally opposed to some of the things that they are doing. 
Yeah, I'm very much of the same stripe as that. I mean, I, I've been called that as well. It, it has never bothered me. I, I take pride in my independent thinking. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm kind of curious uh, of what your peers, uh, you know, are privately saying about this. I mean, I've talked to a lot of folks that are just fundamentally unhappy with the direction that the Louisiana State Republican Party's going in. Uh, and that we're not leaving enough space uh, in the tent to, to bring new people in. And this this state is changing demographically relatively fast. Uh, and I'm kind of curious uh, what you're hearing and actually what your thoughts are as, as it relates. To yeah, that. I mean, look, I mean, I think if you took a private poll anonymous and no, nobody would find out the results, I think you'd be close to 105 uh, House members saying they were against closing the primaries. Uh, for the reasons that you're bringing up now publicly, some of them won't say that because they want, you know, the the party to always be behind them. Moving to a closed primary is really a gatekeeping function. It's really to put the power into a select few people, Republicans, of what they believe the Republican Party should be, not what necessarily the people or the actual Republicans believe it should be. Um, and so they have a lot more influence when you close the primaries than they do in an open primary system, and that's really what this is all about was really shifting that focus from the people and the and the legislators themselves and to put it into, uh, you know, Lewis Gervich's hands so that he can select the candidates. You're going to have to come up through the party ranks. Uh, it would shut the door on somebody like me who would really, before he ran for office, before I ran for office, I, I didn't do anything in the party. I was just kind of like a dad and a lawyer. And I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go do this. I think I could I could help. You're really shutting that out. I mean, you're going to have to come out like you're going to have to like want to know in college you want to be in the legislature and get involved in the young Republicans and do all those like party things where you establish a base and network that way. Um, and then ultimately, what it leads to is extreme candidates on both sides that aren't necessarily particularly popular. Uh, you know, to me, it's 50 plus one. That's the most popular guy. He should be elected. Under the closed primary system, what they're proposing is you could literally have maybe 20 percent of the vote in your own parish or your own district. You can win in a party election because you could just run six people in it, a plurality of people, whoever has the, 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 the most the, – the biggest early base but not maybe the broadest base will, will win the party nomination. And then that person will ultimately win because if he's in a Republican versus Democrat, it's a Republican area. The Republican is going to be the Democrat. And same, you know, same thing is true on the opposite way. In Orleans Parish, you're going to have the Democrat dominate the Republican that way. And so it really c controls, you know, as more as a ideological pure person that makes the party people happy, and not necessarily the guy or the woman um, who makes more people happy in his district. I mean, you know, one of the things I've always loved is my district is a third, a third, and a third by registration. It's a third Republican, it's a third Democrat, and it's a third no party slash independent. I mean, that gave me – I had to make all those people happy. I couldn't go too far to the right because if I did, I would lose you know, two-thirds of my district. If I went you know, too far to the middle or left, I would lose two-thirds of my district. So I was always having to make the broadest base happy. Um, and so that's my entire district. A third of my district would be disenfranchised. I know people like would say it's not true, but it would be. You have a third of my district who couldn't vote deciding elections. So really now you reduce my district – to just two-thirds of the people deciding, and really you're just re reducing my district to just one-third of the district deciding because the Republican will prevail at the end of the day. The numbers are ultimately there on the crossover. You know, Republicans will, will turn out and everything else. So, I mean, 
when I look at those things, that's not democratic in my opinion. That's that's something else. It's it's an oligarchy of some kind um, where you're just choosing based off of a very select group of people. I know it's a long explanation, but I was trying to really break it down how it affects my Well, but you bring up some important points, and let's try to simplify this for those that are not involved in, in the political world in a political sense. Basically, uh, what it was is what they wanted was whoever the top vote-getter was of all the Republicans that were running in, in the Republican primary, no matter if it was as little as 20% of the vote that they actually got. Now, what passed in the legislature was that you had to have 50% plus one, right? Correct. Yes. So so that was a big issue that the governor lost there because that's not what the party wants. Uh, They don't necessarily want the person that is appeasing uh, a broader spectrum of Republicans. They really want the party person that's appeasing their ideological bent, whatever they choose. So if you tend to be fiscally conservative and maybe fall out a little bit more socially moderate, you got no shot under a closed party system of getting the the uh, Republican endorsement. Fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. Very, very fair statement, and you, and you could even reverse it. And, you know, if you're socially conservative, but maybe you have a lot of blue-class workers uh, and you don't tow the, the corporate right. line on stuff, you, you, you also probably don't have a shot. Um, you have to be both. You have to check both boxes. Um, and I think that's when things become problematic. Yeah, and it's whatever they choose to be the topic of that, that political season, too, right? Which is very right. dynamic. It's not static. It doesn't it's not it's not like you go into this process as you point out and i was very shocked to learn when i started interacting with my peers across the country that came out of closed primary systems individual folks that i knew that ultimately became sheriffs sitting on a sideline for 20 years waiting for the opportunity to run it's like you got to be kidding me <laughs> i mean you know people with you know just incredibly educated folks have given their life to this endeavor worked in the private sector waiting on the sidelines for the party to say okay it's your turn now <laughs> absolutely and i think the, you know the flip side of it is a great the sheriff is a great example uh, a, a, a extremely popular sheriff uh you know who has like 80 percent of support can win it in the first under our system an extremely popular sheriff is probably facing two elections in another in, in a closed system where he's going to have to go win the republican again and then go win the democrat after that um, which is kind of unnecessary and expensive and wasteful, which is a whole other topic. But, yes, um, I think you know, that's kind of the, the main issue, that this is ultimately about gate, gate, gatekeeping and keeping choices away from the public. Yeah. we got to get to a break. We're visiting with Tanner McGee, former Louisiana State Representative, District 53, out in Lafouche and Terrebonne. We'll be right back. We're talking about Governor Jeff Landry's first special session has ended. What got accomplished? Who are the winners? Who are the losers? We'll be right back. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. 
Welcome back, folks. We're visiting with Tanner McGee, former state Louisiana State Representative, District 53 from the parishes of Lafouche and Terrebonne. So in the end, Tanner, there's a compromise, I guess, with the leadership in both the House and the Senate, uh, probably more so the Senate, five types of elections that now will be in a closed primary system, party system, Louisiana uh, congressional races, both House and Senate, the State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, Public Service Commission, and the State Supreme Court elections. I think I have a pretty good idea why they resolved on, you know, to these particular uh, races. I wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I think probably there's a feeling or a sense that on a national level it doesn't really matter that much um, because you're pretty much just doing Republican versus Democrat anyway. I think the other elections, I think you kind of saw that, you know, the political power of those specific offices within the legislature itself. Um, I think, you know, there's a reason why local sheriffs, DAs, were not even built, built to begin with and why the Supreme Court, Bessie, and PSC got put in at the end. Um, I think it was probably a, a way for the Senate to let the governor say face and say he got a win and make him feel good and let him go out there in the public and say he did pass the bill. Uh, at the same time, keeping the elections basically the same for most offices. And at the end of the day, I think that's exactly what happened. So what happens, though, when they uh, because we talked about this disenfranchising of voters that have no party affiliation or are registered as independent? Uh, what passed out of the state legislature is that those folks can now claim uh, and, and go vote in either the Democrat or the Republican primary system. Right. Correct. Yes. I mean, they're really just trying to. You know, at the end of the day, I think this was the Senate telling the governor, look, this will give you – it gives you an appearance of a win. But at the end of the day, I don't think that it fundamentally changes losing elections at all. Other than it, it makes it more confusing and makes it more difficult when you're trying to do all this stuff. And, you know, I talk to my register of voters pretty frequently, and she says, you know, the biggest thing is you have a lot of people in, in this area who have been registered Democrats, and they think they've changed their registration, and they only find out that they didn't when they go vote. And then they get mad at me because they believe they did something that they didn't do. And then she gets accused of being part of some conspiracy theory to, to rig elections, um, which could be further from the truth. But so that's that's the only thing you're inducing into this confusing system that that we kind of created now. So as I in, in, in summing this portion up, uh, I, I thought this was a, a an incredible strategic error on the part of, of the governor. I didn't quite understand what he thought. I, I guess he thought everybody was just going to jump on the surfboard and ride the wave with him. Uh, but the moment in time, uh, you know, any number of folks began to kind of raise the flags and, and, and the warnings and blowing whistles and everything else about this, it seemed as though a lot of, a lot of folks started to fall out. And I think a lot of folks in, intuitively knew it was a political problem from day one. But I got to imagine that we're going to have bills in the next legislative session, if not the regular session, to undo what was just done in in, in this special session. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think because it's, first of all, the confusion of having a bifurcated system one way for these offices and one way for this office doesn't make much sense. Uh, so I think you're going to be gradually undoing of all of this stuff eventually over time. I think it was a huge strategic error myself, and I think – 
it showed to me watching everything from my side and knowing what I know about the legislature, it showed the governor didn't really do his homework on a lot of these issues. It's not just the open and closed primary. He lost the Supreme Court map as well. And I can't figure out why you would introduce a map that was unpopular in the legal community of Jefferson Parish when the president of the Senate is from Jefferson Parish. Like, why would you have not worked that out before you filed that map? It should have never gotten that far. I mean, the governor had plenty of time to kind of meet with Cameron and meet with other people to try and massage issues and see what he could do to make a map that worked. To go in there, push a map through that's deeply unpopular within the Senate president's home base just is mind-boggling to me. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't understand what he was thinking other than maybe he was thinking he could just ride the wave of his election and not have to do any real work in the legislature. Think this is a wake-up call? I think it shows you have to work. Um, you know that you just can't use your per- force of personality in Louisiana legislature that will get you so far. You know you can probably push the House around a good amount, but the Senate, you know, has its protections in play, and they they always do sort of push back. I think, and you know, when they go into the regular, I think they'll give him some wins. I think they will try to kind of kumbaya come back together. But at the end of the day, I think they showed first that. You know, Cameron has a lot more substance to him than many people realize um, that he's really smart and he knows how to work the system well. Um, he's going, he showed himself to be sort of the leader um, in state government right now. I know I've talked to many of my colleagues, I've talked to lobbyists, and pretty much the, the day after the Supreme Court bill sort of died and the closed primary bill got gutted, everybody's like, oh, Cameron's the king. And I think that you saw that shift immediately. So I think Cameron really established himself. As, as the person to do everything in state government, to ha- that, you know, it's not going to be Governor Landry just telling Cameron what to do. He's going to have to go to Cameron and work things out and have a dialogue. It's not just going to be, this is my bill, file it, pass it. It's going to be, hey, does this work for you? Let's talk. I think that's what got established in that session. Yeah, I mean, look, he's got a... a- a career where he was near leadership for a long, long time. So obviously he's got the institutional knowledge and, and, and he's incredibly bright and, and incredible and has a, a great political intuition. Uh, no doubt about that. It's amazing that uh, we would ask uh, leaders to sacrifice certain things so early on, especially if you're one that plays the long game. I mean, you know, as well as I, this whole process is about relationships that you build inside of both the House and the Senate and and across the aisles from the House to the Senate, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I, I don't want to be overly critical because, you know, the governor is doing this first session for, for real and, you know, having to, to kind of maybe learn stuff that he didn't know before. But choosing your bill authors matters. I mean, you should be – you should be – it shouldn't be about, I really like this person. I'm going to let them carry the bill. They may be a good person, and they may be good for some bills. But you got to look at the bill itself. What does it do, and what can that bill author, author bring to the table to move that bill through the process? It's not as simple as, you know, this person's a fighter, and I hate when I hear those terms in the legislature. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, what do you do? They're going to punch you outside? They're going to scream a lot yeah. at the table? I mean, I don't understand what that means, even really, in, in the world of politics. What you need is somebody who knows how the process works, who can build a coalition to get your bill across the line. And that may not be the same people you, like, love and are your friends with. I mean, you have to – you know, this is governing. It's hard. It's not, you know, it's not just saying a bunch of stuff in TV and media and 
bills pass. I mean, you got to think those things through. I mean, sometimes it's about going to people who are kind of not on the same team as you and say, hey, man, maybe we can work together on this. Let's, let's talk this out. Maybe you can carry this bill for me, and we can talk about these other issues you have. And then that person, because of their relationships in the body, the bill sails through. I mean, look, I'd be lying to you right now, Noel, if I didn't tell you we didn't kill bills all the time just because we didn't personally like the author. I mean, it's, or pass bills because right, I don't want to vote against you know, John Q. Smith because I really like him. He's so nice. You know, I mean, you can't help it. That's just human, that's human nature, liking people and wanting to help them. And not liking them and not wanting to help them is just human nature. And all of that factors into the body. And I think the governor in the next session needs to be more strategic in seeking those, those things out as he plays along. And if you know that your weakness is going to be Democrats and some of this stuff, go to a Democrat author. Maybe if you go to a more independent-minded author, can you help me pass this bill? Like, what's your thoughts on this? I mean, that's, that's kind of how that that's um, I give Governor Edwards credit. He was always looking for Republicans. Now, we, we turned him down a lot, but he was always looking for Republicans to carry his legislation because he knew that, that was the best path for his stuff to pass. Not because yeah. he wanted to work with Republicans. He had no choice. Well, it's interesting that you bring up governors always had a strong say-so um, in, in that. And so it was kind of curious when uh, the both bodies said that we needed to start uh, airing or appearing to, or being more independent from the executive branch and, you know, electing folks that we believe are the best individuals to lead us as a body, as opposed to um, succumbing to the to the wishes of the governor. And I was curious whether or not that was going to happen this time. I'm not so sure that it did in picking who, but obviously they just some folks decided they better flex their muscle now. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think I think the governor was a more of a force in the House leadership elections. I think, you know, uh, I think, again, kudos to Cameron. He has sort of laid the groundwork before Jeff even got involved. Now, I think he, Jeff kind of put his thumb on the scale a little bit in the Senate. But I think Jeff, I think the difference is Cameron sort of has his own base of support um, that he can work from where maybe in the House the, the base of support is really the governor to begin with. And I think you saw that through the process. Um, and so, I mean, I, you know, look, I'm, I'm a big fan of legislative independence. I, I thought it was great for us. I was sad to see any of it erode. I think it's the way it should be, regardless of what party the governor is and what party the legislature is made up of. So it's, you know, it's interesting to watch it. But, I mean, Cameron definitely showed that it's not dead completely, although it may be a little bit different. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it will present itself in a little bit of a different fashion. Anything else that you uh, found to be odd or different about this special session? Yeah, you know, look, I, I don't think I've seen the Supreme Court be as engaged in the political nature of the of the of the body before. I mean, that was that was sort of an eye opener. I mean, they've maybe always secretly been engaged, but never maybe so publicly and never so um, kind of open about it. <laughs> I mean, you really had like justices again, and we saw a little bit of it last session, but it seemed like we were thinking maybe that was just an aberration and it was going to go away and it was going to go back to normal where they kind of be kind of like this austere, you know, uh, esteemed body above politics. But they kind of came back to session and were more political than they ever were. Um, you know, I think it's weird that – I mean, I shouldn't say this as a lawyer because I'm probably going to get myself in trouble, but I think it's weird they think they can draw their own <laughs> districts. <laughs> I mean, like, 
that's literally the constitutional authority of the legislature and um, given to us by the Constitution of Louisiana. And they know that more than anybody, yet they think they're entitled to draw those districts um, to, to where they want them to be exactly. And I find that very weird. I think that's something the legislature self pre- self-preservation, though, right? I mean, because oh, a lot of those folks are running for re-election. They're not some are aged out, but most aren't. <laughs> so yeah, they want to make sure that they can that they can win, <laughs> right? No, that's what it boils. That's what it, that's what it boils down to. It's self-preservation, um, and you know, even the congressional members like they they try to draw their own districts, but they have, it's like a dialogue where I felt like the, the Supreme Court is more like, "Here's my district, take it." Um, and so I just find that really, really um, interesting and probably I kind of frown upon it, to be honest with you. Well, I mean, that's the whole that's a whole problem with and the frustration that the electorate has with gerrymandering, as opposed to having independent bodies sit down that don't have something at stake. Uh, they're not voting or trying to propose something in their own best self-interest. And that's why in Louisiana, we're going to end up with districts that run from north Louisiana to just south of central Louisiana for the sake of getting the numbers, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and obviously, you know, in, in, in one case with, with Congress, it was about eliminating somebody's position, Garrett Graves. He actually Correct. I mean, endorsed an opponent to Jeff Landry, and, you know, we're going to let the politics play out. Everybody's all, you know, it's, it's amazing to me, uh, and I have nothing against any of these folks. But it's all about seniority up there. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. And, and that's why we, you know, we're out there in the party saying, well, there's seniority. We, we can't afford to lose, lose this. But when it came to this redistricting, there was always there was also political retribution. So we're trying to save, I think, the most junior congressperson, Julia Letlow, and sacrifice one of the folks that has the most seniority. It's like, okay, so what happened to that argument? Where did that go as it relates to this? And, no, absolutely. You know, and look at me. I even go a step further. You know, Garrett is in line to be transportation uh, chairman next next term, which would put him in charge of the Army Corps of Engineers. I don't think there's any position that's more critical for southeast Louisiana, including Jefferson, including Orleans, including Terrebonne and Lafourche Parishes, than being in charge of the Army Corps of Engineers and being, having the ability to – crack the whip on them and, and push projects forward, I think, is our approved projects, let them go forward, would be huge for us. So, I mean, it's it goes well beyond just, you know, what we, oh, we like that guy. I mean, it's, this is our own self-interest at stake. And I mean, it's self-interest as a, as a state. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of strange alliances and hesitations and stuff as they were trying to figure out the leadership in Congress that now seems to come back to haunt uh, Garrett for a number of different reasons. But we don't really know everything that he knew about what was going on and what what was going to shake out up there. But what we but we what we knew for sure is that he endorsed an opponent to the governor. And, you know, and here here we are and we're eliminating one of the most senior members uh, of the body again, you know, um, not not really in the best interest, and we're letting politics influence where we're ultimately going to be on a, on a number of these issues. Uh, that's not to say that I'm not a fan of Julia Letlow. It's just a, it's just something that you know where the wind the winds change and uh, folks' position on these things change, and we end up uh, running counter to what we have sold as the most important ingredient 
in the reelection of almost everyone up there is seniority, and then we go right against it. No, look, and I mean, I, I, I agree with you 100%, and I would even add that I think we, uh, I think Troy Carter's safe because Troy does a good job on the Democrat side, the reason why I bring it up. But, I mean, we were playing fast and loose with that as well, um, you know, not really looking at it from that standpoint at all. And I think we're, you know, I, I try to be kind to my to my opposite colleagues. I think Troy, for his politics, does a tremendous drop, job. So, I mean, mm-hmm. um, it's it having, you know, you know it's hard. It's, it's, it's something you don't really want to say in public, but when there's a Democrat president, you want some Democrats that can help you. Um, for as a state, um, and, sure. and, that, and that's just the way it is. So you need both parties representing your state on some level. And like you said, Troy's built up a little bit of steam going over there. And we were just like, hey, man, we don't really care about your district at all. It's all about, you know, you can get reelected or not. You're not Look, left I, enough. As a Republican, start. as a Republican sheriff, Troy Carter was very helpful to me, and I'll never forget Absolutely. it. <laughs> yep. You know, and the fact that I had an R didn't matter to him. Uh, he he knew me, and I knew him. And, you know, and and that's what it needs to be about in the end, quite frankly. We'll be right back. We're visiting with Tanner McGee, former Louisiana State Representative, District 53, Lafourche and Terrebonne Parish. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. We're visiting with Tanner McGee, former Louisiana State Representative, District 53, Lafourche and Terrebonne. We've been talking about the first special session that has ended. Let's, uh, Tanner, have you heard... Uh, if there's going to be a different approach with the next special session about crime, where there'll be more preparation, more communication leading into it, and maybe uh, revealing the text of bills <laughs> that people can actually read. You know, I t- just talked to my colleagues um, last week and over the weekend. Um, they have not heard any new approaches uh, to what they had now. I mean, I would, if I was the governor, I'd rethink my stuff and, you know, kind of try and see if I can build some coalitions on the front end before I go in, particularly in the Senate. But they're all the colleagues I spoke to, or former colleagues, I should say, they are still in the dark about what's coming up and exactly what the crime session will look like, what kind of bills the governor is looking for. I think they're still kind of in the dark as well. Because correct me if, my, I'm a, if I'm wrong, that session starts when? Uh Monday? Is it this Monday or the following Monday? I think it's the following because they're in, they're in D.C. Mardi Gras right now, so I don't think they're going right. to be doing it this Monday. Okay. So that's not much time in between, and obviously, you know, it, it's a big issue, right? I mean, when, when you talk about uh, retreating on criminal justice reform, there were some of the things that were passed that I didn't particularly care for, but uh, I understood the motivation for it. And what's going to be interesting in this session, I think, is that a lot of the retreat is going to cost money and whether or not there's going to be an appetite to fund it. Your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, the, you and I know this. And we probably can't articulate it enough on air how incredibly complicated criminal justice reform and all those pieces actually are. It's not quite as straightforward as people would like it to be. Uh, it's, it's complicated for people who know the topic matter, to be honest with you. Uh, and you know, in a lot of it, the whole driving force of it was to save money and to reinvest it. If you're going to undo portions of it, you're going to not be saving money anymore. So there are going to be fiscal notes attached to it. Um, and, you know, when you create fiscal notes in the capital, it makes those bills really hard to pass. So that's going to yeah, be one of the more that- interesting topics you're going to see going forward. 
I can't thank you enough for joining me. Uh, I love uh, your openness and transparency. It's a breath of fresh air for me. You don't duck any questions, and I appreciate that as well. Tanner McGee, former Louisiana State Representative, District 53 from Lafouche and Terrebonne. Best of luck to you, Tanner. Thank you so much for joining us. I enjoy it. Thank you. Bye. All righty. We'll be right back, folks. 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. When we come back after the top of the news break, we'll uh, enter into our NOLA Coalition segment. We'll be joined by Valerie Jefferson, president of the Women of Action, ATU Women's Caucus of NOLA, and James Gray, NAACP. He uh, heads up ACT So. It's about an enrichment and achievement program and how they're helping one another. We'll be right back. After the break, stay with us. This is Newell on WWL. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. 